Kitiara whispered. Caressing the hilt of her sword, Kit gave Lorana a meaningful glance. Do nothing rash. Turning away from him, she walked back to stand beside Lorana. Trembling in fear and rage, his thoughts whirling in confusion, Tannis stumbled down the stairs leading from the snake's head platform. The noise of the assembly rolled around him like the crash of oceans. Light flashed off spear points. The torch flames blurred his vision. He set his foot upon the floor and began to walk toward Ariakas's platform without any clear idea of where he was or what he was doing. Moving by reflex alone, he made his way across the marble floor. The faces of the Draconians who made up Ariakas's guard of honor floated around him like a hideous nightmare. He saw them as disembodied heads, rows of gleaming teeth, and flicking tongues. They parted before him, the stairs materialized at his feet, as if rising out of fog. Lifting his head, he stared up bleakly. At the top, stood Lord Ariacus, a huge man, majestic, armed with power. All the light in the room seemed to be drawn into the crown upon his head. Its brilliance dazzled the eyes, and Tannis blinked, blinded, as he began to climb the steps, his hands on his sword. Had Kityara betrayed him? Would she keep her promise? Tannis doubted it. Bitterly he cursed himself. Once more he had fallen under her spell. Once more he had played the fool, trusting her. And now she held all the game pieces. There was nothing he could do. Or was there? An idea came to Tannis so suddenly he stopped, one foot on one step, the other on the step below. Idiot! Keep walking! He commanded feeling everyone staring at him, forcing himself to retain some outward semblance of calm, Tannis climbed up another step. And another. As he drew closer and closer to Lord Ariakas, the plan became clearer and clearer. Whoever holds the crown rules. The words rang in Tannis's mind. Kill Ariakas, take the crown. It will be simple. Tannis's gaze flashed around the alcove feverishly. No guards stood beside Ariakas, of course. No one but high lords were allowed on the platforms. But he didn't even have guards on the stairs, as did the other high lords. Apparently the man was so arrogant, so secure in his power. He had dispensed with them. Tannis's thoughts raced. Kityara will trade her soul for that crown, and as long as I hold it, she will be mine to command. I can save Lorana. We can escape together. Once we are safely out of here, I can explain things to Lorana. I can explain everything. I'll draw my sword, but instead of placing it at Lord Ariakas's feet, I will run it through him. Once the crown is in my hand, no one will dare touch me. Tannis found himself shaking with excitement. With an effort, he forced himself to calm down. He could not look at Ariakas, fearing the man might see his desperate plan in his eyes. 
He kept his gaze upon the stairs, therefore, and he knew he was near Lord Ariarchus only when he saw five steps remained between himself and the top of the platform. Tannis's hand twitched upon the sword. Feeling himself under control, he raised his gaze to look into the man's face and, for an instant, was almost unnerved at the evil revealed there. It was a face made passionless by ambition, a face that had seen the deaths of thousands of innocents as the means only to an end. Ariakas had been watching Tanis with a bored expression, a smile of amused contempt on his face. Then he lost interest in the half-elf completely, having other matters to worry about. Tanis saw the man's gaze go to Kityara, pondering. Ariakas had the look of a player leaning across a game board, contemplating his next move, trying to guess what his opponent intends. Filled with revulsion and hatred, Tanis began to slide the blade of his sword from its scabbard. Even if he failed in his attempt to save Lorana, even if they both died within these walls, at least he would accomplish some good in the world by killing the commander of the dragon armies. But as he heard Tanis draw his sword, Ariakas's eyes flashed back to the half-elf once again. Their black stare penetrated Tanis's soul. He felt the man's tremendous power overwhelm him, hitting him like a blast of heat from a furnace. And then realization struck Tanis a blow almost physical in its impact, nearly causing him to stagger on the stairs. The aura of power surrounding him. Ariakas was a magic user, blind, stupid fool! Tanis cursed himself, for now as he drew nearer he saw a shimmering wall surrounding the Lord, of course. That's why there were no guards. Among this crowd, Ariakas would trust no one. He would use his own magic to guard himself. And he was on guard now, that much Tanis could read clearly in the cold, passionless eyes. The half-elf's shoulders slumped. He was defeated. And then, Strike, Tannis! Do not fear his magic! I will aid you! The voice was no more than a whisper, yet so clear and so intense, Tannis could practically feel hot breath touch his ear. His hair raised on the back of his neck, a shudder convulsed his body. Shivering, he glanced hastily around. There was no one near him, no one except Ariakas. He was only three steps away, scowling, obviously anxious for this ceremony to come to an end. Seeing Tanis hesitate, Ariakas made a peremptory motion for the half-elf to lay his sword at his feet. Who had spoken? Suddenly Tanis's eyes were caught by the sight of a figure standing near the Queen of Darkness, robed in black. It had escaped his notice before. Now he stared at it, thinking it seemed familiar. Had the voice come from that figure? If so, the figure made no sign or movement. What should he do? He wondered frantically. Strike, Tannis! Whispered once more in his brain, swiftly. Sweating, his hand shaking, 
Tannis slowly drew his sword. He was level with Ariakas now. The shimmering wall of the Lord's magic surrounded him like a rainbow glittering off sparkling water. I have no choice, Tannis said to himself. If it is a trap, so be it. I choose this way to die. Feigning to kneel, holding his sword hilt first to lay it upon the marble platform, Tannis suddenly reversed his stroke. Turning it into a killing blow, he lunged for Ariakas's heart. Tannis expected to die. Gritting his teeth as he struck, he braced himself for the magic shield to wither him like a tree struck by lightning. And lightning did strike, but not him. To his amazement, the rainbow wall exploded, his sword penetrated, he felt it hit solid flesh. A fierce cry of pain and outrage nearly deafened him. Ariaka staggered backward as the sword blade slid into his chest. A lesser man would have died from that blow, but Ariakas's strength and anger held death at bay. His face twisted in hatred. He struck Tanis across the face, sending him reeling to the floor of the platform. Pain burst in Tanis's head. Dimly, he saw his sword fall beside him, red with blood. For a moment, he thought he was going to lose consciousness, and that would mean his death, his death and Lorana's. Groggily, he shook his head to clear it. He must hang on. He must gain the crown. Looking up, he saw Ariakas looming over him, hands lifted, prepared to cast a spell that would end Tanis's life. Tanis could do nothing. He had no protection against the magic, and somehow he knew that his unseen helper would help no more. It had already achieved what it desired. But powerful as Ariakas was, there was a greater power he could not conquer. He choked. His mind wavered. The words of his magic spell were lost in a terrible pain. Looking down, he saw his own blood stain the purple robes. The stain grew larger and larger with each passing moment as his life poured from his severed heart. Death was coming to claim him. He could stave it off no longer. Desperately, Ariakas battled the darkness, crying out at the last to his dark queen for help. But she abandoned weaklings. As she had watched Ariakas strike down his father, so she watched Ariakas himself fall, her name the last sound to pass his lips. There was uneasy silence in the hall of audience as Ariakas's body tumbled to the floor. The crown of power fell from his head with a clatter and lay within a tangle of blood and thick, black hair. Who would claim it? There was a piercing scream. Kityara called out a name, called to someone. Tanis could not understand. He didn't care anyway. He stretched out his hand for the crown. Suddenly, a figure in black armor materialized before him. Lord Soth. Fighting down a feeling of sheer panic and terror, Tanis kept his mind focused on one thing. The crown was only inches 
beyond his fingers. Desperately he lunged for it. Thankfully he felt the cold metal bite into his flesh, just as another hand, a skeletal hand, made a grab for it too. It was his. Soth's burning eyes flared. The skeletal hand had reached out to wrest the prize away. Tanis could hear Kitiara's voice shrieking incoherent commands. But as he lifted the blood-stained piece of metal above his head, as his eyes fixed, unafraid upon Lord Soth, the hushed silence in the hall was split by the sound of horns, harsh, blaring horns. Lord Soth's hand paused in midair. Kitiara's voice fell suddenly silent. There was a subdued, ominous murmur from the crowd. For an instant, Tanis's pain-clouded mind thought the horns might be sounding in his honor, but then, turning his head to peer dimly into the hall, he saw faces glancing around in alarm. Everyone, even Kitiara, looked at the Dark Queen. Her Dark Majesty's shadowy eyes had been on Tanis, but now their gaze was abstracted. Her shadow grew and intensified, spreading through the hall like a dark cloud. Reacting to some unspoken command, Draconians, wearing her black insignia, ran from their posts around the edge of the hall and disappeared through the doors. The black-robed figure Tanis had seen standing beside the queen vanished, and still the horns blared. Holding the crown in his hand, Tanis stared down at it numbly. Twice before, the harsh blaring of the horns had brought death and destruction. What was the terrible portent of the dread music this time? Chapter 10 Whoever Wears the Crown Rules So loud and startling was the sound of the horns that Caraman nearly lost his footing on the wet stone. Reacting instinctively, Barum caught him. Both men stared around them in alarm as the blaring trumpet calls dinned loudly in the small chamber. Above them, up the stairs, they could hear answering trumpet calls. The arch! It was trapped! Caraman repeated. Well, that's done it. Every living thing in the temple knows we're here. Wherever here is... I hope to the gods you know what you're doing. Jasla calls, Barum repeated. His momentary alarm at the blaring trumpets dissipating, he continued forward, tugging Caraman along behind him. Holding the torch aloft, not knowing what else to do or where else to go, Caraman followed. They were in a cavern, apparently cut through the rock by flowing water. The archway led to stone stairs, and these stairs, Caraman saw, led straight down into a black, swiftly flowing stream. He flashed the torch around, hoping that there might be a path along the edge of the stream, but there was nothing, at least within the perimeter of his torchlight. Wait! he cried. But Barum had already plunged into the black water. Caraman caught his breath, expecting to see the man vanish in the swirling depths, but the dark water was not as deep as it looked. It came only to Barum's calves. 
Come, he beckoned Karaman. Karaman touched the wound in his side again. The bleeding seemed to have slowed. The bandage was moist, but not soaked. The pain was still intense, however. His head ached, and he was so exhausted from fear and running and loss of blood that he was lightheaded. He thought briefly of Tika and Tass. Even more briefly of Tanis. No, he must put them out of his mind. The end is near, for good or for evil, Tika had said. Karaman was beginning to believe it himself. Stepping into the water, he felt the strong current sweeping him forward, and he had the giddy feeling that the current was time, sweeping him ahead to... What? His own doom? The end of the world? Or hope for a new beginning? Barum eagerly sloshed ahead of him, but Karaman dragged him back again. We'll stick together, the big man said, his deep voice echoing in the cavern. There may be more traps, worse than that one. Barum hesitated long enough for Karaman to join him. Then they moved slowly, side by side, through the rushing water, testing each footstep, for the bottom was slick and treacherous with crumbling stone and loose rock. Karaman was wading forward, breathing easier, when something struck his leather boot with such force it nearly knocked his feet out from under him. Staggering, he caught hold of Barum. What was that? he growled, holding the flaring torch above the water. Seemingly attracted by the light, a head lifted out of the shining wet blackness. Caraman sucked in his breath in horror, and even Barum was momentarily taken aback. Dragons, Caraman whispered, hatchlings. The small dragon opened its mouth in a shrill scream. Torchlight gleamed in rows of razor-sharp teeth. Then the head vanished, and Caraman felt the creature strike at his boot once more. Another one hit his other leg. He saw the water boil with flailing tails. His leather boots kept them from hurting him now. But, Caraman thought, if I fall... The creatures will strip the flesh from my bones. He had faced death in many forms, but none more terrifying than this. For a moment he panicked. I'll turn back, he thought frantically. Barum can go alone. After all, he can die. Then the big warrior took hold of himself. No, he sighed. They know we're down here. They'll send someone or something to try to stop us. I've got to hold off whatever it is until Barum can do what he's supposed to do. That last thought made no sense at all, Caraman realized. It was so ludicrous it was almost funny, and, as if mocking his decision, the quiet was broken by the sound of clashing steel and harsh shouts coming from behind them. This is insane. He admitted wearily. I don't understand. I may die down here in the darkness, and for what? Maybe I'm down here with a crazy man. Maybe I'm going crazy. Now Barum became aware of the guards coming after them. This frightened him more than dragons, and he plunged ahead. Sighing, Caraman forced himself to ignore the slithering attacks at his feet and legs as he waded forward through the black, rushing water, trying to keep up with Barum.
The man stared constantly ahead into the darkness, occasionally making moaning sounds and wringing his hands in anxiety. The stream led them around a curve where the water grew deeper. Caraman wondered what he would do if the water rose higher than his boots. The dragon young were still frantically chasing after them, the warm smell of human blood and flesh driving them into a frenzy. The sounds of sword and spear rattling grew louder. Then something blacker than night flew at Caraman, striking him in the face. Flailing, trying desperately to keep from falling into that deadly water, he dropped his torch. The light vanished with a sizzle as Barum made a wild grab for him and caught him. The two held on to each other for a moment, staring, lost and confused, into the darkness. If he had been struck blind, Caraman could not have been more disoriented. Though he had not moved, he had no idea what direction he faced. He couldn't remember a thing about his surroundings. He had the feeling that if he took one more step, he would plunge into nothingness and fall forever. There it is, Baron said, catching his breath with a strangled sob. I see the broken column, the jewels gleaming on it, and she is there, she is waiting for me, she has waited all these years. Jasla! he screamed, straining forward. Peering ahead into the darkness, Caraman held Barum back, though he could feel the man's body quivering with emotion. He could see nothing. Or could he? Yes. A deep sense of thankfulness and relief flooded his pain-racked body. He could see jewels sparkling in the distance, shining in the blackness with a light it seemed even this heavy darkness could not quench. It was just a short distance ahead of them, not more than a hundred feet. Relaxing his grip on Barum, Caraman thought, Perhaps this is a way out. For me, at least. Let Barum join this ghostly sister of his. All I want is a way out, a way to get back to Tika and Tass. His confidence returning, Caraman strode forward. A matter of minutes, and it would be over. For good, or for... Shirak, spoke a voice. A bright light flared. Caraman's heart ceased to beat for an instant. Slowly, slowly, he lifted his head to look into that bright light, and there he saw two golden, glittering, hourglass eyes staring at him from the depths of a black hood. The breath left his body in a sigh that was like the sigh of a dying man. The blaring trumpets ceased. A measure of calm returned to the hall of audience. Once more, the eyes of everyone in the hall, including the Dark Queen, turned to the drama on the platform. Gripping the crown in his hand, Tanis rose to his feet. He had no idea what the horn calls portended, what doom might be about to fall. He only knew that he must play the game out to its end, bitter as that may be. Lorana, 
she was his one thought. Wherever Baram and Karaman and the others were, they were beyond his help. Tanis's eyes fixed on the silver-armored figure standing on the snake-headed platform below him. Almost by accident, his gaze flicked to Kityara standing beside Lorana, her face hidden behind the hideous dragon mask. She made a gesture. Tanis felt more than heard movement behind him. Like a chill wind brushing his skin, whirling, he saw Lord Soth coming toward him, death burning in the orange eyes. Tanis backed up, the crown in his hand, knowing he could not fight this opponent from beyond the grave. Stop! he shouted, holding the crown poised above the floor of the hall of audience. Stop him, Kityara, or with my last dying strength I will hurl this into the crowd. Soth laughed soundlessly, advancing upon him, the skeletal hand that could kill by a touch alone outstretched. What dying strength? the Death Knight asked softly. My magic will shrivel your body to dust. The crown will fall at my feet. Lord Soth, rang out a clear voice from the platform from the center of the hall. Halt! Let him who won the crown bring it to me. Soth hesitated, his hand still reaching for Tanis. His flaming eyes turned their vacant gaze upon Kityara, questioning. Removing the dragon helm from her head, Kityara looked only at Tanis. He could see her brown eyes gleaming and her cheeks flushed with excitement. You will bring me the crown, won't you, Tanis? Kityara called. Tanis swallowed. Yes, he said, licking his dry lips. I will bring you the crown. My gods, Kityara ordered, waving them forward. An escort. Anyone who touches him will die by my hand, Lord Soth. See that he reaches me safely. Tanis glanced at Lord Soth, who slowly lowered his deadly hand. He is your master still, my lady. Tanis thought he heard the Death Knight whisper with a sneer. Then Soth fell into step beside him, the ghostly chill emanating from the night, nearly congealing Tanis's blood. Together they descended the stairs, an odd pair, the pallid knight in the blackened armor, the half-elf clutching the blood-stained crown in his hand. Ariakas's officers, who had been standing at the foot of the stairs, weapons drawn, fell back, some reluctantly, as Tanis reached the marble floor and passed by them. Many gave him black looks. He saw the flash of a dagger in one hand, an unspoken promise in the dark eyes. Their own swords drawn, Kityara's guards fell in around him, but it was Lord Soth's deathly aura that obtained safe passage for him through the crowded floor. Tanis began to sweat beneath his armor, so this is power, he realized. Whoever has the crown rules, but that could all end in the dead of night with one thrust of an assassin's dagger. Tanis kept walking, and soon he and Lord Soth reached the bottom of the stairs leading up to the platform shaped like the head of a hooded snake.
At the top stood Kitiara, beautiful in triumph. Tanis climbed the spur-like stairs alone, leaving Soth standing at the bottom, his orange eyes burning in their hollow sockets. As Tanis reached the top of the platform, the top of the snake's head, he could see Lorana, standing behind Kitiara. Lorana's face was pale, cool, composed. She glanced at him and at the blood-stained crown, then turned her head away. He had no idea what she was thinking or feeling. It didn't matter. He would explain. Running over to him, Kityara grasped him in her arms. Cheers resounded in the hall. Tanis, she breathed. Truly, you and I were meant to rule together. You were wonderful, magnificent. I will give you anything, anything. Lorana? Tanis asked coldly, under the cover of the noise. His slightly slanted eyes, the eyes that gave away his heritage, stared down into Kityara's brown eyes. Kit flicked a glance at the elf woman, whose gaze was so fixed, whose skin was so pale she might have been a corpse. If you want her, Kityara shrugged, then drew closer, her voice for him alone. But you will have me, Tanis. By day we will command armies, rule the world. The knights, Tanis, they will be ours alone, yours and mine. Her breath came fast, her hands reached up to stroke his bearded face. Place the crown on my head, beloved. Tanis stared down into the brown eyes. He saw them filled with warmth and passion and excitement. He could feel Kitiara's body pressed against his, trembling, eager. Around him the troops were shouting madly, the noise swelling like a wave. Slowly, Tanis raised the hand that held the crown of power. Slowly he lifted it, not to Kitiara's head, but to his own. No, Kitiara, he shouted so that all could hear. One of us will rule by day and by night. Me. There was laughter in the hall, mixed with angry rumblings. Kityara's eyes widened in shock, then swiftly narrowed. Don't try it, Tanis said, catching her hand as she reached for the knife at her belt. Holding her fast, he looked down at her. I'm going to leave the hall now, he said softly, speaking for her ears alone, with Lorana. You and your troops will escort us out of here. When we are safely outside this evil place, I will give you the crown. Betray me, and you will never hold it. Do you understand? Kityara's lips twisted in a sneer. So she is truly all you care about? She whispered caustically. Truly, Tanis replied. Gripping her arm harder, he saw pain in her eyes. I swear this on the souls of two I loved dearly, Sturm Brightblade and Flint Fireforge. Do you believe me? I believe you, Kityara said in bitter anger, looking up at him, reluctant admiration flared once more in her eyes. You could have had so much. Tanis released her without a word. 
Turning, he walked over to Lorana, who was standing with her back to them, gazing sightlessly above the crowd. Tanis gripped her arm. Come with me, he commanded coldly. The noise of the crowd rose up around him, while above him he was aware of the dark, shadowy figure of the queen, watching the flux of power intently, waiting to see who would emerge strongest. Lorana did not flinch at his touch. She did not react at all, moving her head slowly, the honey-blonde hair falling in a tangled mass around her shoulders. She looked at him. The green eyes were without recognition, expressionless. He saw nothing in them, not fear, not anger. It will be all right, he told her silently, his heart aching. I will explain. There was a flash of silver, a blur of golden hair. Something struck Tanis hard in the chest. He staggered backward, grasping for Lorana as she stumbled, but he could not hold her. Shoving him aside, Lorana sprang at Kityara, her hand grabbing for the sword Kit wore at her side. Her move caught the human woman completely by surprise. Kit struggled, briefly, fiercely but Lorana already had her hands upon the hilt. With a smooth movement, she yanked Kit's sword from the scabbard and jabbed the sword hilt into Kityara's face, knocking her to the platform. Turning, Lorana ran to the edge. Lorana, stop! Tanis shouted. Jumping forward to catch her, he suddenly felt the point of her sword at his throat. Don't move, Tamvalasa. Lorana ordered. Her green eyes were dilated with excitement. She held the sword point with unwavering steadiness. Or you will die. I will kill you if I have to. Tanis took a step forward. The sharp blade pierced his skin. Helpless, he stopped. Lorana smiled sadly. You see, Tanis, I am not the lovesick child you knew. I'm not my father's daughter living in my father's court. I'm not even the Golden General. I am Lorana, and I will live or die on my own without your help. Lorana, listen to me, Tanis pleaded, taking another step toward her, reaching up to thrust aside the sword blade that cut into his skin. He saw Lorana's lips pressed together tightly, her green eyes glinted. Then, sighing, she slowly lowered the sword blade to his armor-plated chest. Tanis smiled. Lorana shrugged and, with a swift thrust, shoved him backward off the platform. Arms flailing wildly in the air, the half-elf tumbled to the floor below. As he fell, he saw Lorana, sword in hand, jump off after him, landing lightly on her feet. He hit the floor heavily knocking the breath from his body. The crown of power rolled from his head with a clatter and went skittering across the polished granite floor. Above him, he could hear Kityara shriek in rage. Lorana! He gasped, without breath to shout, looking for her frantically. He saw a flash of silver. The crown! Bring me the crown! Kityara's voice dinned in his ears. But she was not the only one shouting. All around the hall of audience the high lords were on their feet, ordering their troops forward. 
The dragons sprang into the air. The Dark Queen's five-headed body filled the hall with shadow, exulting in this test of strength that would provide her with the strongest commanders, the survivors. Clawed draconian feet, booted goblin feet, steel-shod human feet trampled over Tannis, struggling to stand, fighting desperately to keep from being crushed. He tried to follow that silver flash. He saw it once. Then it was gone, lost in the melee. A twisted face appeared in front of him. Dark eyes flashed. A spear-butt smashed into his side. Groaning, Tannis collapsed to the floor as chaos erupted in the Hall of Audience. Chapter 11 Jasla Calls Raistlin It was a thought, not spoken. Caraman tried to talk, but no sound came from his throat. Yes, my brother said Raistlin, answering his brother's thoughts as usual. It is I, the last guardian, the one you must pass to reach your goal, the one her dark majesty commanded be present if the trumpets should sound. Raistlin smiled derisively. And I might have known it would be you who foolishly tripped my spell trap. Raist! Caraman began and choked. For a moment he could not speak. Worn out from fear and pain and loss of blood, shivering in the cold water, Caraman found this almost too much to bear. It would be easier to let the dark waters close over his head, let the sharp teeth of the young dragons tear his flesh. The pain could not be nearly so bad. Then he felt Barum stir beside him. The man was staring at Raistlin vaguely, not understanding. He tugged on Caraman's arm. Jasla calls. We must go. With a sob, Caraman tore his arm away from the man's grasp. Barum glared at him angrily, then turned and started ahead on his own. No, my friend. No one's going anywhere. Raistlin raised his thin hand, and Barum came to a sudden, staggering stop. The Everman lifted his gaze to the gleaming golden eyes of the mage, standing above him on a rock ledge. Whimpering, wringing his hands, Barum gazed ahead, longingly, at the jeweled column, but he could not move. A great and terrible force stood blocking his path, as surely as the mage stood upon the rock. Caraman blinked back sudden tears, feeling his brother's power. He fought against despair. There was nothing he could do, except try and kill Raistlin. His soul shivered in horror. No, he would die himself first. Suddenly Caraman raised his head, so be it. If I must die, I'll die fighting, as I had always intended. Even if it means dying by my own brother's hand. Slowly Caraman's gaze met that of his twin. You wear the black robes now? 
he asked through parched lips. I can't see. In this light? Yes, my brother. Raislin replied, raising the staff of Magius to let the silver light shine upon him. Robes of softest velvet fell from his thin shoulders, shimmering black beneath the light, seeming darker than the eternal night that surrounded them. Shivering as he thought of what he must do, Caraman continued, And your voice, it's stronger, different, like you. And yet not like you. That is a long story, Caraman, Raislin replied. In time you may come to hear it. But now you are in a very bad situation, my brother. The Draconian guards are coming. Their orders are to capture the Everman and take him before the Dark Queen. That will be the end of him. He is not immortal, I assure you. She has spells that will unravel his existence, leaving him little more than thin threads of flesh and soul wafting away on the winds of the storm. Then she will devour his sister, and, at last, the Dark Queen will be free to enter Kryn in her full power and majesty. She will rule the world and all the plains of heaven and the abyss. Nothing will stop her. I don't understand. No, of course not, dear brother. Raceland said, with a touch of the old irritation and sarcasm. You stand next to the Everman, the one being in all of Kryn who can end this war and drive the Queen of Darkness back to her shadowy realm, and you do not understand. Moving nearer the edge of the rock ledge, upon which he stood, Raceland bent down, leaning on his staff. He beckoned his brother near. Caraman trembled, unable to move, fearing Raceland might cast a spell upon him but his brother only regarded him intently. The Everman has only to take a few more steps, my brother, and he will be reunited with the sister who has endured unspeakable agonies during these long years of waiting for his return to free her from her self-imposed torment. And what will happen then? Caraman faltered, his brother's eyes holding him fast with a simple power greater than any magic spell. The golden, hourglass eyes narrowed. Raceland's voice grew soft, no longer forced to whisper, the mage yet found whispering more compelling. The wedge will be removed, my dear brother, and the door will slam shut. The Dark Queen will be left howling in rage in the depths of the abyss. Raceland lifted his gaze and made a gesture with his pale, slender hand. This, the Temple of Istar, reborn, perverted by evil, will fall. Caraman gasped. Then his expression hardened into a scowl. No, I am not lying. Raceland answered his brother's thoughts. Not that I can't lie when it suits my purpose, but you will find, dear brother, that we are close enough still so that I cannot lie to you, and in any case, I have no need to lie. It suits my purpose that you know the truth. Caraman's mind floundered. He did not understand any of this, but he didn't have the time to dwell on it. Behind him, echoing back down the tunnel, he could hear the sound of draconian guards on the stairs. His expression grew calm, his face set in firm resolve.
Then you know what I must do, Raced, he said. You may be powerful, but you still have to concentrate to work your magic. And if you work it against me, Barum will be free of your power. You can't kill him. Caraman hoped devoutly Barum was listening and would act when it was time. Only your dark queen can do that, I suppose. So that leaves... You, my dear brother, Raceland said softly. Yes, I can kill you. Standing, he raised his hand and... Before Caraman could yell or think or even fling up his arm, a ball of flame lit the darkness as if a sun had dropped into it. Bursting full upon Caraman, it smote him backward into the black water. Burned and blinded by the brilliant light, stunned by the force of the impact, Caraman felt himself losing consciousness, sinking beneath the dark waters. Then sharp teeth bit into his arm, tearing away the flesh. The searing pain brought back his failing senses, screaming in agony and terror. Caraman fought frantically to rise out of the deadly stream. Shivering uncontrollably, he stood up. The young dragons, having tasted blood, attacked him, striking at his leather boots in frenzied frustration. Clutching his arm, Caraman looked over quickly at Barum and saw to his dismay that Barum hadn't moved an inch. Jasla, I'm here! I will free you! Barum screamed. But he stood frozen in place by the spell. Frantically he beat upon the unseen wall that blocked his path. The man was nearly insane with grief. Raceland watched calmly as his brother stood before him, blood streaming from the slashed skin on his bare arms. I am powerful, Caraman, Raceland said, staring coldly into the anguished eyes of his twin. With Tannis's unwitting help, I was able to rid myself of the one man upon Crin who could have bested me. Now I am the most powerful force for magic in this world, and I will be more powerful still, with the Dark Queen gone. Caraman looked at his brother dazedly, unable to comprehend. Behind him, he heard splashes in the water and the Draconians shouting in triumph. Too stupefied to move, he could not take his eyes from his brother. Only dimly, when he saw Raistlin raise his hand and make a gesture toward Barum, did Caraman begin to understand. At that gesture, Barum was freed. The Everman cast one quick backward glance at Caraman and at the Draconians plunging through the water, their curved swords flashing in the light of the staff. Finally, he looked at Raistlin, standing upon the rock in his long black robes. Then, with a joyful cry that rang through the tunnel, Barum leaped forward toward the jeweled column. Jasla! I am coming! Remember, my brother. Raceland's voice echoed in Caraman's mind. This happens because I choose it to happen. Looking back, Caraman could see the Draconians screaming in rage at the sight of their prey escaping. The dragons tore at his leather boots, his wounds hurt horribly, but Caraman didn't notice. 
Turning again, he watched Barum run toward the jeweled column as if he were watching a dream. Indeed, it seemed less real than a dream. Perhaps it was his fevered imagination. But as the Everman neared the jeweled column, the green jewel in his chest seemed to glow with a light more brilliant than Raceland's burst of flame. Within that light, the pale, shimmering form of a woman appeared inside the jeweled column. Dressed in a plain, leather tunic, she was pretty in a fragile, winsome way, very like Barum in the eyes that were too young for her thin face. Then, just as he neared her, Barum came to a stop in the water. For an instant, nothing moved. The Draconians stood still, swords clutched in their clawed hands, dimly, not understanding. They began to realize that somehow their fate hung in the balance, that everything turned upon this man. Caraman no longer felt the chill of the air or the water or the pain of his wounds. He no longer felt fear, despair, or hope. Tears welled up in his eyes. There was a painful burning sensation in his throat. Barum faced his sister, the sister he had murdered, the sister who had sacrificed herself so that he and the world might have hope. By the light of Raceland's staff, Caraman saw the man's pale, grief-ravaged face twist in anguish. Jasla, he whispered, spreading his arms. Can you forgive me? There was no sound, except the hushed swirl of the water around them, the steady dripping of moisture from the rocks, as it had fallen from time immemorial. My brother, between us, there is nothing to forgive. The image of Jasla spread her arms wide in welcome, her winsome face filled with peace and love. With an incoherent cry of pain and joy, Barum flung himself into his sister's arms. Caraman blinked and gasped. The image vanished. Horrified, he saw the Everman hurl his body upon the jeweled stone column with such force that his flesh was impaled on the sharp edges of the jagged rock. His last scream was a terrible one, terrible, yet triumphant. Barum's body shook convulsively. Dark blood poured over the jewels, quenching their light. Barum, you failed! It was nothing! A lie! Yelling hoarsely, Caraman plunged toward the dying man, knowing that Barum wouldn't die. This was all crazy. He would... Caraman stopped. The rocks around him shuddered. The ground shook beneath his feet. The black water ceased its swift flow and was suddenly sluggish, uncertain, sloshing against the rocks. Behind him, he heard the Draconians shouting in alarm. Caraman stared at Barum. The body lay crushed upon the rocks. It stirred slightly, as if breathing a final sigh. Then it did not move. For an instant, Two pale figures shimmered inside the jeweled column. Then 
they were gone. The ever-man was dead. Tannis lifted his head from the floor of the hall to see a hobgoblin, spear raised, about to plunge it into his body. Rolling quickly, he grabbed the creature's booted foot and yanked. The hobgoblin crashed to the floor where another hobgoblin, this one dressed in a different colored uniform, smashed its head open with a mace. Hurriedly, Tannis rose to his feet. He had to get out of here. He had to find Lorana. A draconian rushed at him. He thrust his sword through the creature impatiently, remembering just in time to free it before the body turned to stone. Then he heard a voice shout his name. Turning, he saw Lord Soth standing beside Kityara, surrounded by his skeletal warriors. Kit's eyes were fixed on Tannis with hatred as she pointed at him. Lord Soth made a gesture, sending his skeletal followers flowing from the snake-headed platform like a wave of death, destroying everything within their path. Tannis turned to flee but found himself entangled in the mob. Frantically he fought, aware of the chill force behind him. Panic flooded his mind, nearly depriving him of his senses, and then there was a sharp cracking sound. The floor trembled beneath his feet. The fighting around him stopped abruptly, as everyone concentrated on standing upright. Tannis looked around uncertainly, wondering what was happening. A huge chunk of mosaic-covered stone tumbled from the ceiling, falling into a mass of draconians who scrambled to get out of the way. The stone was followed by another, and yet another. Torches fell from the walls, candles dropped down and were extinguished in their own wax. The rumbling of the ground grew stronger. Half-turning, Tannis saw that even the skeletal warriors had halted, flaming eyes, seeking those of their leader in fear and questioning. The floor suddenly canted away from beneath his feet. Grabbing hold of a column for support, Tannis stared about in wonder. And then darkness fell upon him like a crushing weight. He has betrayed me! The Dark Queen's anger beat in Tannis's mind the rage and fear so strong that it nearly split his skull. Crying aloud in pain, he grasped his head. The darkness increased as Tarkaisis, seeing her danger, sought desperately to keep the door to the world ajar. Her vast darkness quenched the light of every flame, wings of night filled the hall with blackness. All around Tanis, draconian soldiers stumbled and staggered, in the impenetrable darkness, the voices of their officers raised to try and quell the confusion, to stem the rising panic they sensed spreading among their troops as they felt the force of their queen withdrawn. Tanis heard Kityara's voice ring out shrilly in anger, then it was cut off abruptly. A horrible, rending crash, followed by screams of agony, gave Tanis his first indication that the entire building seemed likely to fall in on top of them. Lorana! Tannis screamed. Trying desperately to stand, he staggered forward blindly, only to be hurled to the stone floor by milling draconians. Steel clashed. Somewhere he heard Kityara's voice again, rallying her troops. Fighting despair, Tannis stumbled to his feet again, 
Pain seared his arm. Furious, he thrust aside the sword blow aimed at him in the darkness, kicking with all his strength at the creature attacking him. Then a rending, splitting sound quelled the battle. For one breathless instant, everyone in the temple looked upward into the dense darkness. Voices hushed in awe. Tarkaisis, Queen of Darkness, hung over them in her living form upon this plain. Her gigantic body shimmered in a myriad colors. So many, so blinding, so confusing, the senses could not comprehend her awful majesty, and blotted the colors from the minds of mortals, many colors, and none. So Tarkaisis seemed. The five heads each opened wide their gaping mouths, Fire burned in the multitude of eyes, as if each were intent upon devouring the world. All is lost, thought Tanis in despair. This is the moment of our ultimate victory. We have failed. The five heads reared up in triumph. The domed ceiling split apart. The temple of Istar began to twist and writhe, rebuilding, reforming, returning to the original shape it had known before darkness perverted it. Within the hall itself, the darkness wavered and then was shattered by the silver beams of Solinari. Called by the dwarves, Night Candle. Chapter 12 The Debt Repaid and now, my brother, farewell. Raceland drew forth a small round globe from the folds of his black robes. The dragon orb. Caraman felt his strength seep from him. Placing his hand upon the bandage, he found it soaked, sticky with blood. His head swam, the light from his brother's staff wavered before his eyes. Far away, as if in a dream, he heard the Draconians shake loose from their terror and start toward him. The ground shook beneath his feet, or perhaps it was his legs trembling. Kill me, Raceland. Caraman looked at his brother with eyes that had lost all expression. Raceland paused. His golden eyes narrowed. Don't leave me to die at their hands, Caraman said calmly asking a simple favor. End it for me now, quickly. You owe me that much. The golden eyes flared. Oh, you? Raceland sucked in a hissing breath. Oh, you? He repeated in a strangled voice, his face pale in the staff's magical light. Furious, he turned and extended his hand toward the Draconians. Lightning streaked from his fingertips, striking the creatures in the chest. Shrieking in pain and astonishment, they fell into the water that quickly became foaming and green with blood as the baby dragons cannibalized their cousins. Caraman watched dully, too weak and sick to care. He could hear more swords rattling, more voices yelling. 
He slumped forward. His feet lost their footing. The dark water surged over him. And then he was on solid ground. Blinking, he looked up. He was sitting on the rock beside his brother. Raceland knelt beside him, the staff in his hand. Raced, Caraman breathed, tears coming to his eyes. Reaching out a shaking hand, he touched his brother's arm, feeling the velvet softness of the black robes. Coldly, Raceland snatched his arm away. Know this, Caraman, he said, and his voice was as chill as the dark waters around them. I will save your life this once, and then the slate is clean. I owe you nothing more. Caraman swallowed. Raced, he said softly. I, I didn't mean. Raceland ignored him. Can you stand? He asked harshly. I, I think so, Caraman said hesitantly. Can't, can't you just use that, that thing to get us out of here? He gestured at the dragon orb. I could. But you wouldn't particularly enjoy the journey, my brother. Besides, have you forgotten those who came with you? Tika, Tars! Caraman gasped. Gripping the wet rocks, he pulled himself to his feet. And Tannis, what about— Tannis is on his own. I have repaid my debt to him tenfold, Raceland said. But perhaps I can discharge my debts to the others. Shouts and yells sounded at the end of the passage. A dark mass of troops surged into the dark water, obeying the final commands of their queen. Wearily, Caraman put his hand on the hilt of his sword, but a touch of his brother's cold, bony fingers stopped him. No, Caraman, Raceland whispered, his thin lips parted in a grim smile. I don't need you now. I won't need you any more. Ever. Watch. Instantly, the underground cavern's darkness was lit to day-like brilliance with the fiery power of Raceland's magic. Caraman, sword in hand, could only stand beside his black-robed brother and watch in awe as foe after foe fell to Raceland's spells. Lightning crackled from his fingertips. Flame flared from his hands. Phantasms appeared so terrifyingly real to those looking at them that they could kill by fear alone. Goblins fell screaming, pierced by the lances of a legion of knights who filled the cavern with their own war chants, at Raceland's bidding, then disappeared at his command. The baby dragons fled in terror back to the dark and secret places of their hatching, draconians withered black in the flames. Dark clerics, who swarmed down the stairs at their queen's last bidding, were impaled upon a flight of shimmering spears, their last prayers changed to wailing curses of agony. Finally came the black robes, the eldest of the order, to destroy this young upstart, but they found, to their dismay, that, old as they were, Raceland was in some mysterious way older still. 
His power was phenomenal. They knew within an instant that he could not be defeated. The air was filled with the sounds of chanting, and one by one they disappeared as swiftly as they had come, many bowing to Raislin in profound respect as they departed upon the wings of wish spells. And then it was silent. The only sound the sluggish lapping of water. The staff of Magius cast its crystal light. Every few seconds a tremor shook the temple, causing Caraman to glance above them in alarm. The battle had apparently lasted only moments, although it seemed to Caraman's fevered mind that he and his brother had been in this horrible place all their lives. When the last mage melted into the blackness, Raistlin turned to face his brother. You see, Caraman he said coldly. Wordlessly, the big warrior nodded, his eyes wide. The ground shook around them, and the water in the stream sloshed up on the rocks. At the cavern's end, the jeweled column shivered, then split. Rivulets of rock dust trickled down onto Caraman's upturned face as he stared at the crumbling ceiling. What does it mean? What's happening? he asked in alarm. It means the end, Raceland stated, folding his black robes around him. He glanced at Caraman in irritation. We must leave this place. Are you strong enough? Yeah. Give me a moment, Caraman grunted. Pushing himself away from the rocks, he took a step forward, then staggered, nearly falling. I'm weaker than I thought, he mumbled, clutching his side in pain. Just let me catch my breath. Straightening, his lips pale, sweat trickling down his face, Caraman took another step forward. Smiling grimly, Raistlin watched his brother stumble toward him. Then the mage held out his arm. Lean on me, my brother, he said softly. The vast vaulted ceiling of the Hall of Audience split wide. Huge blocks of stone crashed down into the hall, crushing everything that lived beneath them. Instantly, the chaos in the hall degenerated into terror-stricken panic, ignoring the stern commands of their leaders who reinforced these commands with whips and sword thrusts. The Draconians fought to escape the destruction of the temple, brutally slaughtering anyone, including their own comrades, who got in their way. Occasionally, some extremely powerful Dragon High Lord would manage to keep his bodyguard under control and escape, but several fell, cut down by their own troops, crushed by falling rock, or trampled to death. Tanis fought his way through the chaos, and suddenly saw what he had prayed the gods to find, a head of golden hair that gleamed in Solinari's light, like a candle flame. Lorana, he cried, though he knew he could not be heard in the tumult. Frantically he slashed his way toward her, a flying splinter of rock tore into one cheek. Tanis felt warm blood flow down his neck, but the blood and pain had no reality. 
and he soon forgot about it as he clubbed and stabbed and kicked the milling draconians in his struggle to reach her. Time and again he drew near her, only to be carried away by a surge in the crowd. She was standing near the door to one of the antechambers, fighting draconians, wielding Kitiara's sword with the skill gained in long months of war. He almost reached her as, her enemies defeated, she stood alone for a moment. Lorana, wait! He shouted above the chaos. She heard him. Looking over at him, across the moonlit room, he saw her eyes calm, her gaze unwavering. Farewell, Tannis, Lorana called to him in Elven. I owe you my life, but not my soul. With that, she turned and left him, stepping through the doorway of the antechamber, vanishing into the darkness beyond. A piece of the temple ceiling crashed to the stone floor, showering Tannis with debris. For a moment he stood wearily, staring after her. Blood dripped into one eye. Absently he wiped it away. Then, suddenly, he began to laugh. He laughed until tears mingled with the blood. Then he pulled himself together and, gripping his blood-stained sword, disappeared into the darkness after her. This is the corridor they went down, raced. Raceland, Caraman stumbled over his brother's name. Somehow the old nickname no longer seemed to suit this black-robed, silent figure. They stood beside the jailer's desk, near the body of the hobgoblin. Around them, the walls were acting crazily, shifting, crumbling, twisting, rebuilding. The sight filled Caraman with vague horror, like a nightmare he could not remember so he kept his eyes fixed firmly on his brother. His hand clutched Raceland's thin arm, thankfully. This, at least, was flesh and blood, reality in the midst of a terrifying dream. Do you know where it leads? Caraman asked, peering down the eastern corridor. Yes, Raceland replied without expression. Caraman felt fear clutch at him. You know... Something's happened to them. They were fools, Raceland said bitterly. The dream warned them. He glanced at his brother, as it warned others. Still, I may be in time, but we must hurry. Listen. Caraman glanced up the stairwell. Above him, he could hear the sounds of clawed feet racing to stop the escape of the hundreds of prisoners set free by the collapse of the dungeons. Caraman put his hand on his sword. Stop it! Raceland snapped. Think a moment. You're dressed in armor still. They're not interested in us. The Dark Queen is gone. They obey her no longer. They are only after booty for themselves. Keep beside me. Walk steadily, with purpose. Drawing a deep breath, Caraman did as he was told. He had regained some of his strength and was able to walk without his brother's help now, ignoring the Draconians, who took one look at them, then surged past. The two brothers made their way down the corridor. Here the walls still changed their shape, the ceiling shook, and the floors heaved. 
Behind them they could hear ghastly yells as the prisoners fought for their freedom. At least no one will be guarding this door, Raislin reflected, pointing ahead. What do you mean? Caraman asked, halting and staring at his brother in alarm. It's trapped, Raislin whispered. Remember the dream? Turning deathly pale, Caraman dashed down the corridor toward the door. Shaking his hooded head, Raislin followed slowly after. Rounding the corner, he found his brother crouching beside two bodies on the floor. Tika! Caraman moaned. Brushing back the red curls from the still, white face, he felt for the life beat in her neck. His eyes closed a moment in thankfulness. Then he reached out to touch the kender, and Taz, no! Hearing his name, the kender's eyes opened slowly, as if the lids were too heavy for him to lift. Caraman, Tass said in a broken whisper. I'm sorry. Taz. Caraman gently gathered the small, feverish body into his big arms. Holding him close, he rocked him back and forth. Shh, Taz. Don't talk. The kender's body twitched in convulsions. Glancing around in heartbroken sorrow, Caraman saw Tasselhoff's pouches lying on the floor, their contents scattered like toys in a child's playroom. Tears filled Caraman's eyes. I tried to save her, Tass whispered, shuddering with pain. But I couldn't. You saved her, Tass, Caraman said, choking. She's not dead, just hurt. She'll be fine. Really? Tass's eyes, burning with fever, brightened with a calmer light, then dimmed. I'm... I'm afraid I'm not fine, Caraman, but... but it's all right, really. I... I'm going to see Flint. He's waiting for me. He shouldn't be out there by himself. I don't know how. He could have left without me anyway. What's the matter with him? Caraman asked his brother, as Raislin bent swiftly over the kender, whose voice had trailed off into incoherent babbling. Poison, said Raislin, his eyes glancing at the golden needle shining in the torchlight. Reaching out, Raislin gently pushed on the door. The lock gave, and the door turned on its hinges, opening a crack. Outside, they could hear shrieks and cries as the soldiers and slaves of Naraka fled the dying temple. The skies above resounded with the roars of dragons. The high lords battled among themselves to see who would come out on top in this new world, listening. Raceland smiled to himself. His thoughts were interrupted by a hand clutching his arm. Can you help him? Caraman demanded. Raceland flicked a glance at the dying Kender. 